This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. To take control of your life and make even your wildest dreams come true, you're going to have to embrace one simple fact. You're living inside of a simulation, a simulation created by your brain. This is how the brain gives us a reality that's at least simple enough that we can manage it. But like the AI algorithms on our social feeds, it also means that our brains dictate not only what we look at, but what we see. AI researcher Yosha Bach is going to help us better understand how this simulation works and how to make it work for us. I think people suffer needlessly because they confuse the distorted narrative running inside of their minds with actual reality. But if I'm right, and we don't have access to the quote unquote real world, and instead we're just a brain in a vat running a simulation, what do we need to understand about the nature of this self-generated simulation in order to live our lives well? When we talk about the brain and the vet, of course, the vet here is, as far as you know, our physical body that is marching through a physical universe and, and uh, is, uh, contains a skull full of cells that have to get along and generate a model of reality and of the individual itself and its relationship to reality. And the purpose of that whole thing is to feed all these cells and to keep them um, in uh, play. And not just for this generation, but over many, many generations, because we evolved not for this particular moment in time, but for a longer course. And in this long multi-generational course, we adapted to certain circumstances, the basically conditions under which our ancestors live. And uh, in many ways, our world has changed in the last few generations rapidly away from the ways in which our great grandparents uh, lived their lives. And these discontinuities are on one hand extremely exciting and they force us to adapt to new circumstances, but they also are very unusual from an evolutionary perspective for the things that we're confronted with. So a lot of the experience that we have are alienating. And it's also very difficult to see in the future and to see how long we'll be around as we've seen um, whether our children or grandchildren will still use any of the thoughts that we have today and any of the things that we build today for them. And this creates uh, justifiedly anxiety, right? If we live in a world that possibly has no future for us or if there's no future extension of us present in the world, it's unsettling. And I think it's a justified experience to have that. When we start creating the mental model, we are not even born yet. And uh, I think that in Uturo already we are starting to prepare a map of our body and how it relates to our needs. We experience our first pleasure and pain probably to some degree. And um, after we are born, 
we are focused on a world that has an up and down direction and uh, which uh, light is playing out and we see patterns in these in the light and then directions and we are able to discern sounds and at some point a few months in we are able to correlate the sound and the directions and we also notice that the space that you're observing is all the same space it's the space in which that we can touch and so at every moment we find ourselves in a scene and this word model the scene is something that our ancestors discovered early on that we generate this that our own consciousness creates this but uh, when we start our own memories at a, as a human being we're typically beyond the stage where we create the world we are personal selves at this point and when we try to remember how our life started i think what we remember are those moments where this personal self is already online because that's right now the vantage point from which i assemble reality right it's me remembering being a person in this world that is being generated in my mind. So I'm no longer the consciousness that creates the world around me in my own mind that runs a simulation engine in my brain that tracks visual data and perceptual data. But I am a being that cares about what it sees in this world and can no longer directly change my perception. I also can no longer directly change my emotion. I'm um, basically exposed to my perception and to my emotion and have to deal with them. And as I grow uh, up, I can build models of the purposes that emerge over my feelings and emotions and needs and desires and fears. And in this way, I create a model of the world that I'm in. And I discover I'm not alone in this world, but there are purposes that I share with others. And, and in this sense, I experience myself as a social being, as a state-building creature that together with others is not only uh, making plans and uh, is trying to change the world in a particular way and specialized in the hive, but we're also creating reality together. We have shared models of reality that we exchange. How close are the models of reality that we have to actual base reality? Well, they are coarse grains models of base reality, which means that they are generalizations over the perceptual data at the resolution in time and space that our percepts have. Which means, for instance, if our neurons take um, 20 milliseconds to pass on a signal from one neuron to the next, this determines the temporal resolution in which uh, they can be excited and track phenomena. And when we are trying to integrate a scene, and it's the question how many neural junctures does the signal need to pass until it computes the necessary functions. And so I observe that my sense of now that I'm in can be a fraction of a second, and it can be something like up to three seconds that I perceive as one cohesive moment of now. And um, the physical now, of course, is different from this. It's spread out much further. So there are things in my perceptual now that are predictive, that are basically playing out in the future. And there are things in my perceptual now that had played out in the past, signals that I just experienced now and need to integrate into my model, despite a signal from my feet needing hundreds of milliseconds until it arrives in my neocortex and then a few more hundred milliseconds until it's processed and when it's surprising to be integrated in my world model, right? So this subjective now is a fiction and the subjective now is constructed. And in the physical world, there are no colors and no sounds. There are also no waves in the ocean, right? There are molecules that exist in the ocean that pull and push at each other, producing something that looks like waves when you zoom very far out. And there is no sound in the air. There is just air molecules pushing at each other in regular patterns. And we pick out energy spectra from these regular patterns and translate them into mathematical models that we experience as sound. And there are no colors in the uh, world. Instead, we have receptors for photons at uh, different energy levels. 
and we sample in certain ranges. And from these samples, we try to integrate a model of uh, what the photons have been doing and the direction that they possibly came from. And this is the type of model that we are building, right? This is this is the distance that it has from the underlying reality. Of course, there is the question: what is the substrates in which the photons emerge? And uh, to, according to our current understanding, we can propose that there is some basic underlying field that is being excited to produce um, waves and particles uh, that we perceive as phonons and uh, photons, and that uh, there are um, in the same way there are is air that can be excited to produce the elements of sound, the phonons that travel through the air and uh, can be perceived in our uh, mind as the outcome of these waves and these energy patterns. The underlying quantum mechanics is also an observer-dependent perspective. It's something what the universe perceives us to from the perspective of the measurement of the experimenter and the most elegant mathematical model that I can fit to those measurements to make sense of them. Right. This is uh, how far we can go. And then there is the question, what is base reality below that? So what are the conditions of a universe that can exist by itself without an initial cause, without an additional underlying substrate? And how far are we from this level? And there are relatively few people which make theories in this regard. One of them who is bold enough is, for instance, Stephen Wolfram, uh, who uh, believes that we can describe the world as basically superposition of all automata, of all base operations that can be performed, and they happen. And I'm not sure if uh, he would say this, but I think they mostly happen because nothing prevents them from happening. So if the universe has nothing that stops it from existing, the default is not that nothing exists, but there is a possibility of existence. And we might be existing in one of those possibilities. Right? There's a stream of possibilities that where we apply all the possible operators on top of each other. And within that stream of possibilities, there are sometimes statistical regularities, parts of the universe that are so regular that other parts of the universe can predict them. So control structure is possible. And uh, sometimes the control structure becomes stable enough to form molecules and then cells and then organisms. And we can only emerge as observers if we have such structure, if we can form organisms that can reflect a regular environment around them. So the only parts of the universe that we can perceive are those that contribute to the structure that we are. And uh, of those, we can only perceive those where we have instruments for perceiving them at the level and resolution where we exist. And so I would not say uh, in the same way as Donald Hoffman that um, reality looks nothing like what we perceive. There is something about reality that we perceive correct, but it's coarse-grained which means you see high-level patterns in, this, in a similar way as you coarse grain the ocean when you look at it and you cannot see the molecules, and instead you try to perceive it as waves. Okay, so out of curiosity, if the simulation is uh, a pure representation of what's going on underneath, it's at a very coarse level, what makes you think that it is directly correlated? So when you think about a computer, and this is definitely Donald Hoffman's take, so a computer is turning uh, electrical circuits on and off. That's all you have. So that creates a perception if you're playing a video game of like, oh, I'm you know running around. The example he always uses is Grand Theft Auto. I'm running around, I jump in a car, I turn the wheel. It gives me the perception that I'm moving this car inside this world. But in reality, all I'm doing is, in, in base reality, all I'm doing is toggling electrical voltages on and off. And so the, the level of abstraction is complete. What about that is wrong? Why do you have confidence that 
that there is a map to direct reality and it just isn't very granular. So when we think about what neurons are doing, they also basically turn currents on and off. And these currents are implemented part as chemical signals. Some of them are probably mechanical signals, electromagnetic signals, and so on. And what neurons are mostly exchanging are um, these neurotransmitters at the gap junctures. And in between the neurons, there are currents that flow and trigger uh, these excitations that then lead to the release of chemicals that the next neuron can perceive. And it's quite similar to uh, what the transistors are doing. There is a slight difference in uh, terms of the way in which this comes about, because our brain is a self-organizing system. All the organization happens inside out, and uh, the, our computers are constructed systems where an engineer goes and forces patterns on the functioning of the system. So we force the transistor to work in a particular way. We force transistors in a particular pattern that can represent a logical function. And then we can write logical functions that are imposed on these transistors, whether they like it or not, and then compute a program that is making sense or not of the data that come into a camera, for instance. Whereas in our own brain, uh, every individual cell needs to have its own control. There is nothing that is able to control the cell from the outside. The cell is trainable from the outside. It can be fed and it can be killed and can probably be uh, rewarded and punished beyond this. But the, every all the control is in the individual cell. This is the machinery that works in our organism. And the individual cells are exchanging patterns of information. And some of these patterns of information are constrained by perception. They are constrained by our sensory cells that uh, put certain patterns into the system. And the system learns that it makes sense to pay attention to those patterns and to predict them, because this allows the organism to navigate the world around it and find food. And so uh, it's, it's something that just emerges over the need of the individual cells to feed themselves. And they can only feed themselves if they cooperate in our body. If they don't figure this out, they're going to starve and die. And of course, we are evolved into a particular functional differentiation. So having a bunch of cells that are tasked with functioning as an eye and a bunch of cells that task with functioning as a brain or as a liver or as a heart is something that the organism is not going to learn in one generation, but it does require many generations of successive specialization in which we acquire more and more function. But uh, the universe that we are in does not look very different from what I would expect if the universe is one that is just emerging over mathematical necessities. In some sense, I think the question is, um, is not so much physicalism or panpsychism or something else, but it's physicalism or simulation theory. Physicalism is the idea that the universe has a mechanical causally closed layer. And the alternative to mechanical here is symbolic. Symbolic means magic. It means meaning that exists because of the force of will of something, not because of then is necessarily an underlying structure independently of that will, right? So uh, when you think of a simulation like Minecraft, that's something that exists due to the will of the programmer turned into a program. And if you find the same interface that the programmer did, or if the programmer lets, leaves an interface for you, like the shell in Minecraft that you can call up, to let the sun rise or go down or create objects in your environment or teleport, right? All these are tricks that are only possible because Minecraft is a magical universe. It's one where a mind has right access on the rules in which reality works. And uh, all these alternatives to physicalism are in some sense simulation theories that require that there is a mind that is realized in some kind of mechanical parent universe. And of course you could stack 
these simulation universes so you can have in Minecraft, create a computer from uh, rocks that you mine in Minecraft, from redstone. And then you can turn, uh, create logical gates from these redstone circuits and then build a computer that is even able to run Minecraft, although very, very, very slowly. But some people have done it. They have implemented a version of Minecraft that runs extremely slowly on a computer in Minecraft. It's beautiful art. Basically, there is no limit to the number of stacks that you can build, except at some point it's going to be so slow that before you go to the next state, the sun and the parent universe is going to burn out and you can no longer run your computer to uh, process the simulation. I've heard you talk about this before. It's running at something like 2 million times slower than the normal Minecraft. So if you want to mm -hmm. see it at the normal speed, you have to speed it up. Um, it's really fascinating. So th that's a really important distinction. And you're getting to what I have a, a gut instinct is the, the nature of things, which is that you have a universe, it is real, it is physical, but the brain is running a true simulation. So in terms of our experience, this is why you can take psychedelics, completely break the simulation. I don't think you're breaking the machinery itself, which is why you return to normal, but you can break the simulation such that you, you know, are basically astral projected if you're doing DMT or something, which I have not done. But the way that people describe it, it, it sounds like you, you really sort of leave this planet, if you will. And that's just manipulating the simulation. It's not manipulating the underlying reality. And this is where I've always been a little bit dubious. I love Donald Hoffman. I've had him on the show multiple times, but I've always been a little dubious about whether this is a pure simulation that we exist in um, or not. And I think because eventually you would have to bump up against, there is something physical somewhere that is running this. I don't see any reason to keep pushing that farther and farther out. I think that the important thing for the human experience is you have to understand your brain is running a simulation. To your point, there's no such thing as color. There's no such thing as quote unquote sound. Those are our interpretations of it. I've never heard anybody use the ocean waves, but that's another great example. The waves aren't real. That's you coming way back out and you're seeing something that then looks like a wave, but the reality is there's something um, going on underneath that. So my thing is when I look at the world from that perspective, okay, there, there is a physical thing here that I have evolved to do well. My simulation has evolved. So my inner world, you know, what we perceive as quote unquote reality, that has evolved to give me predictive ability through simplification, if I had to guess, to be able to navigate the real world well. So I am in a physical universe. The way that I perceive it is a complete abstraction. And so then for me, it becomes a question of, you had said earlier that we don't have control of our emotions. That doesn't ring true to me. I think we have a pretty limited window, but when you think about like a Buddhist monk that can light himself on fire and not seem to outwardly express the kind of suffering that I would think I would be going through. So there is some level of control that we can exert once we understand how our cognition works, how our mental models work, how, how that layer of abstraction works. Yes, I agree. You can get to the level where you have, you, where you have control over the construction of your own self. I uh, once uh, tried to express this as a ladder of stages that you could uh, think of as I don't think that people move through these stages in succession. And I don't think it's a game where you have a score if you get to a higher stage. But um, the, at the lowest level, so to speak, um, we uh, exist just in the here and now when we are babies. Uh, we cannot perceive past and future yet or anticipate them. 
And at some point, we are able to extend ourselves over time and separate between self and world. And uh, at a later stage, we are able to identify our own goals and then learn how to control our own goals and derive them from our needs and establish purposes. And then uh, when we form our models of reality, we usually form them together with others. And uh, most people get to a stage where they're able to perceive a social self. Basically, they read the room and they become part of that room. And uh, in becoming part of this room in the widest possible sense, they have a shared morality with people around them and a shared uh, construction of reality. And the next stage is that you discover rationality and you discover things are true and false independently of what others believe. When you can get to this stage, your um, ideas mean something independently of what others think, because you're now able to take responsibility for your beliefs. You're able to make derivations and disprove things that you believe you have a choice over your beliefs. And uh, in the next stage, you would discover how your own identity is constructed. And then when you construct your own identity, you realize that uh, people are different because they're born in different places and then different things happen to them and they started out with different traits. But we get more and more agency as we get older over this identity. And we realize that our values are not something that is axiomatically given, but that we can choose and we can choose it according to the worlds that we want and that are achievable for us. Right. So what is the harmonic world that I want to contribute to? And from this perspective, I can start to evaluate values and choose values and construct who I am as a being. And uh, on the next stage, I can transcend what I am as a human being. So I go back to the uh, beyond this personal self that I constructed as a child and see myself on the outside. I see how I construct this personal self. And I'm no longer Joshua Bach, but Joshua Bach is a representation inside of me that I can influence and shift around. And uh, Joshua Bach cares about stuff, and I can decide what he should care about, but I'm not him. Instead, I'm not an I. And there's just a set of generation functions, and I can observe what these generation functions are um, trying to optimize for and maybe influence them and observe the outcomes of this. I really want to understand that. So I'm not him, these generation functions. So if you're not him, you're not your identity, what is that relationship? What is what is the sense of I'm not him in that scenario? Him is obviously the identity. What's the the I'm? Uh, when we start out um, as infants, I think that we are just the dreamer. There's basically something that dreams. It's a, an attention that is reflexive and that notices itself attending. I suspect that this is necessary to uh, make us coherent. So basically, we have this spark that tries to observe itself observing doesn't know how to talk about this. It doesn't know how to reflect this very much. But the, uh, what makes consciousness consciousness is awareness of awareness. There's a reflexive element in it. And I suspect that we need to become conscious to train our own brain to perceive reality and to make sense of it. And so we built a toolbox to make sense of reality. Right When we are conscious and awake, we can construct our mental representations and change them. We can construct things in our inner stage we can look into the world of perception and decide how we parse the perception, what we attend to, what's background, what's foreground, what things uh, are meaningful to us, what how our reality is being constructed from the percepts. And uh, these are all skills that we get. And when we are inebriated or tired or asleep and dream, then parts of this functionality can be missing and can dissociate. Or when we uh, become demented or uh, have 
a developmental problem in our brain, we might not be able to uh, get agency over the way in which we contract re uh, construct reality and remain at the stage of where something is being dreamt. And when this uh, active dreamer is gone, this uh, thing that perceives and constructs reality, then we fall asleep. We might be a sleepwalker, we might even be moving, but there will be no coherence in our actions. And so we will not be able to learn in this state and we will not be able to perform goal-directed actions that make sense in, uh, in terms of our purposes. And so consciousness is at the core, I think, the ability to become coherent. And then it's something that is gathering more and more skills as we grow up. And as we get more skills, we understand, we reflect more what we are and consciousness begins to understand itself. It begins to understand at first that it's not actually the personal self, but it's attention on that personal self and identification with the personal self. And then we transcend this identification with the personal self, we perceive it from the outside. I didn't start drinking until very late in my life. So when I had my first uh, drinking experience, I became very aware of what I called the overwatch mechanism. And I think that's what you're describing here. And so you'll hear a lot about the hard problem of consciousness. Look, out of ignorance, like if you've seen those memes where it's like the the small brain guy is, you know, says one thing and then the mid-brain guy says something else and then the the big brain guy says the same thing as the small brain guy. So for me it was like there's no hard problem of consciousness. I'm the small brain Normal people are like, oh my God, like hard problem of consciousness. And then the the smartest people, I have a feeling, come back around to it's not a hard problem. So I'd love to get your take. So I, I have this drink, uh, I'm intoxicated, but I have a sense of I, I am standing outside the intoxication and still watching my body be intoxicated. So I, I was aware of the ways in which I was acting differently. And so I found it very interesting that I still did not find myself with an impulse to do things I wouldn't do when I was sober. And so I have no embarrassing stories from drinking because that overwatch mechanism is always there. That overwatch mechanism is, is present in my dreams. So even though I can't track the logic of the dream, I will occasionally be like, wait, 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 I, I'm almost certain I'm dreaming right now. So that same sense of like, ah, there's some part of me that's watching this. So it seems to me that evolution would build that mechanism in necessarily as a way to be able to formulate a simulation so that I can make sense of the simplification. That like, if you are not going to take in all of the data present in reality, you would need consciousness to navigate that well. If you're going to um, use adaptation as a strategy. I can feel that falling apart as I think about like tardigrades and things, which I very much doubt have a sense of self. So I'm really curious, what what do you think about that? Where where is my logic breakdown? I don't think that there is a breakdown of your logic. I guess that uh, when we are uh, looking naively at the world, we do not notice the fact very much that consciousness could be in any way mysterious. It's only when we think of the world in terms of function and we observe that in the world around us, functions are created by objects pushing and pulling at each other, uh, it becomes difficult to understand how something that uh, like the mind would exist, because it's clearly not made of things pushing and pulling at each other, yet the entire physical universe seems to be stuff pushing and pulling at each other, right? So at this point, you wonder, how does this come about? How can be something purely causal structure? And how is it possible that something that is purely causal structure can perceive? 
And I think that uh, we learn to understand this with the notion of software, because software is purely causal structure that is in the sense disembodied. And the computer is a causal insulator. It's something that works the same way, regardless of what the universe around it is doing within a certain range. So you can take my laptop or my phone and can uh, take it to a different place, say to a mountaintop or to Europe or uh, to a place that is five degrees centigrade hotter than here. And it's still going to work and it's still going to perform the same function despite the physical environment around it changing and working in a different way. And once you have such a universal causal substrate that is able to, um, ex uh, to harbor causal state changes based on some kind of recipe that I put into it, then this thing can be used to make arbitrary models of the future and the, pa the past because the, such models need to be different from what's happening right now. They need to be decoupled from what's happening right now. And when you take such a uh, system and couple it with the outside world, so you, under, in a very controlled way, allow the environment to influence states of that system, then it's able to explain the patterns uh, that it's being entangled with. And these patterns that it's entangled with could be, for instance, the camera image or the patterns on your retina. And you explain them by using the information that you gathered in the past that you turned into models in your brain to predict what's going to happen next. And the elements of these models are, for instance, the scene. And in the scene, like a scene in a computer game, you have a scene controller that contains object controllers that have feature controllers that interact with each other and that are being projected with a particular kind of perspective onto an agent that is also simulated in this world. And the agent also cares about things. So the agent is being told what it cares about via emotions and motivation. And the agent is a system that is looking into the world from its own perspective, and it's a simulation. It's, that means it's as if, it's behaving as if it, there was something that is looking at cares, and that it solves these problems as if it would be solving them, which in this case is the same thing, because if you do as if in a causal structure, it's the same thing as if you do it in another causal structure, right? So software can be emulated using other software. And when you, for instance, follow a planning procedure, then a simulation of this planning procedure is the same thing as following the planning procedure. In this level, there is no more difference between a simulation and a simulation of that simulation, right? And so uh, mental processes of this nature, they are representational. They are not physical processes, even though they're implemented by physics, they're realized through physical processes as far as we know, but they are processes that, that in their purpose create representations. And these representations have are set up in such a way that they causally influence the further generation of representations. And so we create our own thoughts, which are representations. And these thoughts are being interpreted by the system that generates them. And they cause the next thought and the next thought and the next. And these thoughts cause our behavior and they cause structuring of our mind and so on. So this, there's causal structures that are implemented on the physical level, but by their nature, they are built in such a way that they are invariant to the small, tiny changes that the physical universe is producing by itself without us controlling it. And it's true both in the computers that we are building that run software in a deterministic way, and it's also true for our brains that run software by producing patterns and self-organizing cells. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever 
is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you wanna have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now, yahoofinance.com. So is free will an illusion? It depends on how we uh, define free will. Most people, when they want to talk about free will and explain it, they point at something that they perceive. And what they perceive is a sense of agency. They notice that they make decisions for the first time, and they cannot predict these decisions before they make them. 
if you could predict your decisions decisions before you make them, or if they're not decisions, but just apparent glitches in your uh, the behavior of a nervous system, you do not perceive them as free will, right? When you slide on a banana, that's not free will. But uh, when you make a deliberation over the outcomes of your actions, and then after considering the best possible outcomes based on what you know, and you're an actus, then you perceive it as free will. And I think that free will is the perception of this process. So in this sense, I believe that the Calvinists, for instance, had the wrong interpretation of free will. Calvinism is the stream within Christianity that reformed uh, Catholicism uh, because they thought if God knows everything, how can we have free, have free will? But if we have free will, then uh, our actions cannot, uh, if we don't have free will, how can our actions influence whether we go to heaven or not? So in Calvinism, it's preordained whether you go to heaven or not, regardless of what you do, because what you do has been preordained by God at the, uh, before time. Right. So I think this is a misunderstanding, because if your prospects of going to hell influence your behavior uh, or to going to heaven, then they have causal relevance. Right. So just by telling people the fact that if you do X, then you're likely going to end up in this in this place uh, and people believe that or um, take this into consideration, then it's going to have a causal influence on their actions. And uh, of course, you can follow the reason why is somebody telling me this? Do they have free will? Right. And so they might also think that there is a better possible outcome if they influence me and you, you go forth and forth. And you have to understand the reason why that was because nature has set them up as, as a system that controls the future. Agents are systems that are meant to control the future. And they do this by modeling them and then making decisions based on those models. Can you define define an agent really fast? Okay. The simplest explanation for what an agent is, and it's a notion that is very popular in computer science. So I try to get the simplest one is a controller for future states. A controller is a system like a thermostat, right? You all know this example of the thermostat. It has, for instance, a, a metal a, a piece that is reacting to temperature. And when the temperature is a, at a particular range, it's going to close an electrical contact and that contact is turning on the heating. And when the temperature goes above a certain level, then this metal contact bends due to the heat and uh, it uh, uh, disengages and the heating gets turned off. And in this way, you can have an adjustable heating just by adjusting the position of this uh, strip of metal. Uh, you can uh, get it sensitive to its particular target temperature, and then it's going to achieve this target temperature. It's an extremely simple circuit that is not an agent. It's only regulating the present. It's only using the present state of this measurement instrument of this bimetal strip, and uh, that corresponds to the temperature in the room, and then performs an action. And uh, this action in the here and now is going to influence the outcome. But now imagine you want to build a more efficient heating, one that is taking into account how long it takes for the temperature in the room to change. And so, for instance, you could uh, turn off the heating a little bit for the peak because you know the heating is going to continue for a while uh, before it cools down again. And you might also even model that certain times of the day somebody is going to open the window and that's going to influence it. And maybe there's weather outside and you can access the weather report and can take this into consideration. And so the more you can model about reality, the more efficient you can heat. And you do this by basically trying to model the deviation between the target temperature and the current temperature in the future for a branching past of possible futures. And some of these branches in the future are being controlled by your own actions, by whether you will turn on the heating at that point or not. Right. And so you can make a plan of when you want to turn on the heating, under which conditions. And uh, as a result, that you learn, you get much, much better and more efficient at heating. 
And so in this sense, this is an agent because it's one that has a model of reality. It has beliefs and it has expectations over the future over which some prefers and others not. So it has intentions and it can commit to those intentions and turn them into goals. And uh, in this way, you get all the properties of an agent just out of control in future states. So an agent is a controller of future states. All right. So uh, then I trust humans fall into that definition. Yes. Cells also do that. Right? Cells seem to be the simple system that we know in nature that are agents. So you think cells are trying to predict the future? Implicitly. Evolution forces them to uh, become uh, aware of future trajectories by implementing a number of programs into their DNA and uh, other mechanisms in the cell that make it ready to uh, react to certain things. So for instance, when uh, an amoeba that feeds gets a certain condition in its environment, it notices that there's prey nearby and it's going to get closer to this prey, right? And it might not have a concept of prey or very likely doesn't have that, but it has a reactivity to sensors that get it onto a trajectory in which it behaves in such a way that it changes its behavior according to what it can expect in the future to happen. That is that it's going to find prey in a particular kind of direction. And a neuron in your brain also needs to be an agent, right? Would it be fair to say that at the cell level, it's it's uh, if this, then that? So everything is if this, then that. But uh, very often you don't know what's going to happen. And it's not only going to uh, work based on the present. It's also going to work based on the state that the cell is in. So when the amoeba is in the hunting mode, it probably needs to turn a switch inside of itself. Uh, that uh, is switch turned on when probably when the amoeba is more hungry and when it senses something that looks like food in its environment. And then it's going to uh, have some kind of tendency to go into the environment where it's more likely to find food. So it's going to interpret some of the signals that it receives from its environment at its cellular boundary as uh, rules or as um, incentives to go in a particular kind of direction because it's more likely to find food there. So in this sense, it's all if then, but a lot of the if is the state of the system and a lot of that state is representational, which means it does not really depend on the particular arrangement of the molecules in the cell, but it depends on a mechanism that is interpreting this particular arrangement of molecules and many other similar and sometimes dissimilar arrangements of molecules in a particular way as information of the state the cell has to be in and the behavior that it should pursue. Okay, so this is asking me to uh, differentiate between two things. So when I think about uh, single-celled organism amoebas, um, I think of something that would be incapable of consciousness, that ability to create a mental model, to predict different outcomes, to sort of uh, Dr. Strange style, move down a bunch of different paths, mentally come back and say, okay, I'm gonna try this one. I think it's gonna be the best. And so when I think about what makes the human mind more interesting than more simplistic things is that, that it's reached a level of complexity where it has enough different nodes that consciousness arrives, which I've already made a base assumption there, obviously, that consciousness is born out of complexity, which I know is very controversial. Not everybody agrees with that, uh, but seems true to me. So uh, you would stack consciousness or stack complexity to the point where consciousness becomes possible. We have the the self-aware watcher that is able to build a predictive model and thus choose the best path. Are you saying that either that's a mistake 
And we're literally just stacking if then, then that's, and there is no moment where consciousness comes online. And so an amoeba has the same predictive abilities or is there a real dichotomy? There's something very different about the way the two approach the world. So the short answer is, I don't know that. And for the longer answer, we would need to define consciousness first. So we talk about the same thing. And I think that it's there are three elements to consciousness. One is attention to contents. So we notice that we are looking at contents. And then there is awareness of the mode in which we attend. So for instance, we usually know whether this is perceptual or whether it's something that we can construct and change, like a memory or an imagination or a theory that we have or an interpretation of reality that very conditionally manipulate the way in which we parse the percepts to see if they make more sense now. And uh, and the third one is reflexive awareness. We notice that we are aware. And uh, these three elements need seem to be crucial for consciousness. But many, many, we need to have this reflexive awareness. And I suspect that uh, the reason why this is the case is because it's self-organizing. So uh, there's a self-organizing process in our brain. It needs to organize itself in such a way that it doesn't fall apart and is indeed that process. So you basically need to have the memory of the fact that you are actually the observer. And as long as this memory is fresh enough, uh, that might be sufficient, but otherwise you need to go back and check, am I still awake? Am I still this process? And when you are tired, for instance, imagine you are driving a car while being pretty exhausted, you might go back more and more in this reflexive mode where you check, am I still awake? Is this still making sense? Am I still paying attention to the object that I still see, uh, that I see still makes sense and so on. And we notice when we wake up in the morning, the first thing that I do is that I try to orient myself and try to get everything to snap into a cohesive reality where every feature that I perceive is part of the same scene and there are no contradictions in the scene. And I think that ultimately this is the main purpose of consciousness, this creation of a coherent reality. And uh, the long tail of the creation of this coherence in reality is uh, our ability to reason and construct and plan. So it's at the beginning, it's basically just the ability to make sense of the dreams that the observer is having. It's an imposition of order on the perceptual contents. And then now if we go back to simpler organisms to ask ourselves, are they conscious? We can first of all observe that people do not become conscious after the PhD. So it's not the most advanced function that exists in our brain. But we become conscious very, very early on. And when we uh, see a baby being born, it's obviously pretty conscious. And it's not able to track a finger at this stage. So maybe consciousness emerges because it's the simplest mechanism to train a self-organizing information processing system. What do people say when you put that forward? That does not seem like it would be readily absorbed by a lot of the consciousness community. I'm not sure who the consciousness community is. I'm uh, an AI researcher and cognitive scientist. And most people in my field are very reluctant to talk about consciousness at all. And when they do, they try to be very careful to come up with a formal definition of the object that they're talking about. Right. And this means that uh, a lot of them are very hesitant to speak before they have such a formal definition and uh, make theories of it. And they're a little bit more unusual in, the, in that I'm willing to point at a few phenomena and say it's important. And I think it's I think it's time that we turn this into a computational model. And I think I can almost formalize it. But the uh, the crucial thing about this thing is that it seems to emerge early on. And when we don't have it, we don't learn. 
right? If you look at a human being that is born not conscious or that wakes up not conscious, that human being is a vegetable. It's not doing anything. It's not learning. It's not behaving. And in this uh, vegetative state, uh, your mind is not doing anything. Now, what about the order in your organism? If we need consciousness to wake up the mind and bring it into a cohesive order and create coherence in our behavior in real time, um, what about the function of our own body? Can this function of our own body in a completely decentralized way without some coherence imposing principle? And uh, I think that's an open question. Is our body conscious too, but at a different time scale, right? If it was, then it would be conscious not at the time scale of our brain, because uh, the time scale of our brain is given by the signal processing and signal transmission between the neurons, which is very fast and uses its own code. If the cells in the body would basically start to compute information about their uh, coherence and send feedback back and forth until they create one cohesive pattern, um, then uh, this would be much, much slower. And uh, I don't know whether uh, systems outside of complex brains are conscious. I'm completely agnostic with respect to that. I uh, met a couple uh, people uh, who are cognitive scientists who suspect that the same organizational principles that make our representational um, uh, data in our mind coherent by propagating uh, constraints back and forth. And this is enabled by this consciousness enhancing operator that is discovered early on in the organization of our brain consciousness. We might have something that is structurally very analogous to this that happens in every large, well-organized multicellular organism or every lar uh, very large system that is made out of such organisms, like an ecosystem. And uh, to me, this is a theory that it seems to be very hard to test because it would require that such an agent emerges and talks about its conscious experience. Otherwise, I would say um, I am hesitant to ascribe this um, property. I'm agnostic with respect to it because I don't know. I don't think it's impossible, but I'm also not convinced that it's necessary and that it's obviously the case. Is this one of the things that drew you to um, cognitive science and AI as an exploration of cognition? as a way to show how this comes online? I wanted to know how the mind works. I want to understand how what we are and how we relate to reality. And that's why I went into academia in the first place. And then I studied uh, psychology and um, a, a bit of neuroscience and uh, philosophy and um, tried to figure out uh, what do they know. And I had the impression that these fields are not making much progress. And the most progress I could make by building testable models, which to me means something like cognitive architectures that I built in the context of AI. And this is why I stuck around in this field and started building cognitive architectures. And I still think that it's difficult to make progress if you are a pure philosopher or a pure neuroscientist. And if I look at uh, my colleagues who are neuroscientists, their definitions of consciousness tend to be relatively vague. So if I look at global workspace theory, that is a high-level theory that, for instance, is championed by uh, Dehane, who takes it from Bernard Bars, the notion that Dehane has uh, for his models of consciousness are not so closely defined that you could actually understand how the functionality comes about, I think. There's nothing wrong in what she does, as far as I understand it. But uh, it's it's not yet at a point where I can plug this into a simulation and would expect the simulation to become conscious. And um, the same thing is true for, for instance, Michael Graziano's theory of the attention schema. I think it's a good metaphor. If you have a body schema, we understand that the body schema is represented in the somatosensory cortex in our brain. We know where that is. 
we know roughly which shape it has and how it organizes itself. And it's a model of the proprioception of our body and how our body moves in space and what the signals we get on the skin of our body. Right? All the sensations of our body are organized there according to their neighborhood and nature. And they allow the rest of the mind to make inferences based on, on this. Right, So it's pretty clear what this body schema does. And to say that Graziano does that the consciousness is an attention schema and it's similar to attention as the body schema is to our body is, I think, very insightful. But it does not explain how the attention is organized in our brain and how it would give rise to this attention schema. This is something that we need to figure out based on this idea. It's a good idea, but it's insufficient to explain consciousness. Or you have ideas like integrated information theory that is both not explaining how it would work and why it would emerge, uh, nor does it have uh, no contradictions internally. It's a theory that has internal contradictions and therefore cannot work as a theory. And this is basically the spectrum of theories that currently exist in this field. It's, of course, a number of more detailed theories uh, that uh, try to predict particular kind of functionality or go more into how the self-model works and how the self-perception works and reflection works, for instance, the work by Thomas Metzinger and so on. But to put this all together into something that actually works and that we can test, we need to have computational models. That's why I'm an AI. <laughs> That's a good answer. A uh, couple questions. So the reason I'm obsessed with cognition uh, is because it it my my entire life is controlled by cognition. So my thesis that I was laying out in the beginning, you're living a life in a simulation created by your brain. Uh, maybe a very sort of simplistic way to look at it, but very functional in my opinion. Um, what is it that makes you want to understand cognition so well that you can build a mind or that you'd spend your whole career trying to build a mind in order to understand it. And then earlier you talked about um, philosophy, neuroscience, uh, a few other disciplines and said, you didn't think they were making progress. So what is that progress? So for me, progress would be, it gives me the ability to better control my life and, and live a better experience. Um, what does that progress look like for you? And why is that so important that you dedicate your career to it? When you're an artist, the purpose of art is not to live a better life. It's uh, there are basically two levels of artistic appreciation. The lowest one is to say um, it's made by an important artist, right? And if you acquire this, you can speculate that it's going to acquire value. And uh, if you affiliate yourself, it may increase your own status. Uh, the second highest rung uh, of artistic interpretation is you like it, what you see. I, it, it, I like what it looks like to me. I, I like what it makes me feel and so on. And uh, people at the lowest rung of artistic appreciation tend to look down on those people who have this hedonic relationship to art. And I think that the uh, next higher level of artistic interpretation is I value what it allows me to see. So there is something by looking at the artistic artifact and interacting with it that gets you a particular conscious state that leads to an insight, that leads to something that you couldn't see before or that you want to perceive again, and you uh, find that itself valuable. And there might be higher levels, but this is the level that I'm currently at. And I think that we don't understand art well when we think of art just as a job that you perform to live better. And in the same sense, uh, philosophy is not necessarily done to live better, but it exists to under give answers to questions that we currently don't understand. And we perceive the relevance of these questions because uh, they are uh, 
basically they mark gaps in our understanding of reality or metaphysics and ontology and rationality. And this question of how consciousness works and how minds work more generally is the most important and most interesting question to me. And uh, I always felt it's obvious that this is the most important and the most interesting question. And I noticed this puzzlement that other people don't share that or not all other people share it. But I also noticed that this stream has always existed. And so uh, in the history of uh, humanity, there's always been a very strong stream of philosophical tradition that is trying to understand how the mind works and which means to naturalize it. And in our current understanding, naturalization of the mind means that we translate it into a mathematical model, which needs to be computable. So basically we need to express the mind as something like a software program in order to understand it. Okay. So um, would it be fair to say that you, so if you're approaching it like an like somebody who's appreciating art or even as an artist creating cognition itself, um, are you not optimizing for joy, for lack of a better word? No. Uh, I think you have to take your joy out of watching squirrels or cats. If you're unable to experience joy by watching squirrels, you're lost. If you try to get your joy just from generating insights, that's not going to be very sustainable in the long run. So uh, it's similar to other jobs that uh, basically use one faculty of your mind excessively or of your body excessively. You still, if you are a human being, I think you need to do all the things that the human being is wired to need to do in order to feel fulfilled and happy. And if you're unable to do this, uh, then understanding consciousness probably won't help you. Now, uh, so fulfillment would be if, if somebody asked me what my North star was, what I'm trying to optimize my life for hundred percent, it'd be fulfillment. When people ask me what they should optimize their lives for fulfillment, hundred percent. Um, you just mentioned fulfillment and happiness is like, what do you teach your kids in terms of what they should be pursuing in life? Is it fulfillment, happiness? Uh, my children are about as stubborn as their parents and, uh, <laughs> Basically, we are pretty autonomous minds, and I observe the same thing in my children. So my aspiration as a parent is mostly not to tell my children do that, but more model this. So basically, have you looked at this already and seen this and take this into account? And of course, I'm here to answer all questions that I might have. But I try to treat them in the same way as I want to be treated as a child and still want to be treated today, which means I want to be respected as an autonomous mind that makes its own decisions. And uh, I suspect that we are most happy when we are doing the things that we are in some sense born to do. And what we are born to do does not only depend on the traits that we are born with, but for, on the environment that we find ourselves to be in. So our purpose can be derived only by observing the actual world that we are in and finding a place that makes sense to us in that world. And so what I would wish for my children is that they find a place that makes sense to them and that allows them to fulfill their human uh, and intellectual needs that they might have or artistic needs or whatever need they want to develop, cultivate and satisfy in this world. Now, when you say that um, the how the mind works is the most interesting and important um, philosophical problem, I forget the exact words you used. I get interesting. That's going to be unique to whatever individuals share that response. But why is it the most important? Well, first of all, because it's the one that is most unsolved. All uh, the other questions, what if, is, and so on, have uh, relatively well-defined 
courses of action. So when we try to figure out the structure of reality, uh, physics has charted out a course and uh, maybe we need some philosophical spark to understand uh, what determines the nature of base reality. But a lot of physicists uh, have come up with ideas like Mark Tegmark has a mathematical universe idea that is in some sense quite similar to the one that Wolfram has and that echoes uh, to a number of the ideas in uh, foundational physics. If you think about what can be known, you have to think about rationality. So modeling theory, um, how can we make inferences based on observations and so on, the nature of languages, the nature of representations. All these issues are to a very large degree solved. But this uh, the ethics, the question of what should we be doing, um, this is basically the negotiation of conflicts of interest when you share purposes with other systems. You can think about game theory. You can think about how uh, games are changing the world when you play them. This uh, is being addressed by economy. And we can think about the conditions of life on Earth and model them into the future and model how we are interacting with it and how the conditions for life on Earth are going to change in the future. And in uh, all these ways, we can talk about ethics. We can talk about the structures of society that emerge when we establish certain behavioral uh, rules in a society or when we enable certain reflections in society. And the question that is really open, where we don't have a clear course of action right now, at least from the perspective of most practitioners, is who are we? What is our mind? What is our consciousness? How do we relate to reality? So that is the first part of that answer. It's basically it's the most important question because it's the one where we have the least of an answer. It's the one that looks most mysterious to most people. And the other one is um, it's extremely useful because if we are able to mathematize the mind, it means we can auto automate it. We can scale beyond what human brains are doing. We can mathematize philosophy. We can turn philosophy into something where we can automatically compute the answers to problems. And this means that we can integrate over all the disciplines. We can build a tower of Babel, so to speak, that is integrating all the different ways of thinking about reality into a cohesive whole and allows us to understand the conditions under which we exist beyond what the human brain or civilization can do. Have you read Dune by any chance? Yes. I came out of a hospital. I was very bored. So back then I, I thought it's boring, but I uh, very appreciated the inner logic of Dune. It's much more logical and structured and predictive and coherent than, say, Asimov's foundation trilogy that I found embarrassing. And uh, <laughs> Dune is, uh, is uh, all the structure that exists in the societies and Dune over long time spans exists because they are players who play very long games. Whereas mm. in uh, Foundation, it's always a deus ex machina that uh, is just a hidden pattern that some genius uh, is going to discover, but nobody understands. And uh, there's lots and lots of technology that is being uh, discovered all the time that should, in principle, change the entire world dramatically. Whereas in Dune, the long, uh, the, uh, the long tail of technologies might not be discovered, but all the low-hanging fruits are. And that's why the world is so stable. The technologies mm. are largely stable over long time spans. The reason I bring it up is because in Dune, like one of the first, I forget how early, but man, it comes early where they say there's like an intergalactic law that you do not create artificial intelligence. And I was curious what you think uh, in the real world here, where there are people that are saying this is just Pandora's box. Uh, Elon Musk called it a demon summoning circle. He's obviously not opposed to creating it, but he's very wary of just like giving birth to it. Um, 
What do you think about that? Are you at all nervous about uh, what implications it might have to reverse engineer cognition? If I was a science fiction author that wants to write a story about human politics in space, I would be very nervous about AI. Because uh, I don't think that humans are suitable to populate space. They cannot hibernate, or at least not very well, and they probably are very unhappy outside of certain ranges of light and social contacts and foods and so on. So if you put humans even on Mars, I don't think that they will be super happy. And if you want to populate Mars, we should probably breed something or build something that is happy on Mars and suitable for populating Mars. And if you want to go to deep space, you probably should build robots that can go to deep space and that are generally intelligent. So if you think about what the population of uh, deep space is going to look like, right? imagine that uh, we don't also have, won't have much of a choice. Imagine that we are competing with China about populating the universe or pop uh, competing with another species about populating the universe. And uh, one group builds AIs and the other one, uh, so basically very smart robots that can shapeshift and whatever and hibernate and scale up and use a very wide range of nutrients in space or uh, raw materials to recreate their own structure and so on, right? And they compete with human bodies. Human bodies are going to lose this. They're not suitable for this. And so uh, you would not have uh, Babylon 9 or Star Trek. Instead, you have something that doesn't matter to today's readers. Because they won't find people in it. The far future science fiction doesn't have people in it if you tell it properly, no matter what happens. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash 
theory? So if we want to create a universe that is full of people and nothing else but people, and in which all the important decisions are being made of people and the wars are being fought by people and the intrigues are made by people, we need to explain why there is no AI. And the explanation that is being found by um, Frank Herbert and Dune is that the first AIs that had been built lead to massive wars. They create titans. Like the AGI is going to be a system that's become super large and it's going to fight wars against other titans and against civilizations. And they're lucky they're able to defeat them. And now they have a rule against AI. There is still one planet that uh, is subverting this rule a little bit and is building some technology that technically shouldn't. But by and large, everybody is abiding by the rule and all the important computations are made by specially trained humans, the mentats. So you could say it's a narrative device. You could also ask yourself, would it be desirable to populate the universe only with humans? And uh, if you take an extremely egotistical, narrow human perspective, that might sound like obviously correct. But imagine you could have children of some which are humans and some which are not humans, and you can change and choose what, what your children are looking like, right? You probably want your children to be as happy as possible in space. And if this means that your children are robots, so be it. Ooh. And so from my perspective, the question is, when we look into the future, there is life on Earth right now. And life on Earth is, the purpose of life on Earth is to defeat entropy for as long as we can, right? So we create complexity and insight and uh, structure to defeat entropy. That's what life on Earth is doing. And humanity is only a tiny part of it. The mad monkey blade, if you will. And our purpose in this game of life on Earth seems to be to burn the oil, right? That's what we're here for. We help Gaia to recover the accidentally fossilized carbon. We put it back into the atmosphere. Gaia can turn it back into organisms. It's not going to lead to any disasters, right? And the last interglacial between the last two ice ages, temperatures were higher than today. Life didn't go extinct. Actually, it was quite blossoming back then. But it would not be compatible with us if life changes in this way, because our food chain is going to break down. There need to be new animals and plants to populate the regions that we are currently occupying. Right? So evolution is going to create changes if the climate changes on the planet. And it's going to create organisms that can deal with this climate, maybe even influence it. And we seem to be smart enough to burn the oil, but not smart enough to stop ourselves burning it, even if this might conflict with our food chains. Right? And so we are not a very smart species. We are locally very intelligent, but over long enough time spans, we don't play a very long game. And if we think about um, the, not just from the perspective of humans, from the perspective of intelligent agency in the universe, uh, then humans have an important role to play right now. And this could be that we unlock new types of agency, that we build systems that are more coherent than us. And that's, I think, very exciting. Right? It doesn't mean that they will replace us right away, but they might replace us if we in their stead would replace us. Right, And if we in their stead would replace us, who are we to say that this would be a bad thing? Right, So if you make us much smarter and much more lucid and much more able to understand the consequences of our actions and much more coherent, and we decide that uh, there are too many humans on the planet or that we should absorb humans and just uh, run their minds into in a shared hive mind on the planet and we create bodies as we need them. Right, that um, Is this a worse solution than exists right now? So in this sense, I suspect that AGI could be more like photosynthesis. When photosynthesis was invented on the planet, or the existing 
organisms were mostly single-celled because they didn't have enough energy um, that they could harvest from the sunlight to produce interesting structure yet. And as a result, it was mostly, I think, lichens and alga and so on. And um, the really interesting structure happened after plants came up. And these plants, when they saturated the atmosphere with oxygen, uh, due to uh, turning the, um, a lot of the carbon dioxide and the atmosphere into um, organisms, right? They created a lot more biomass than existed before. And this surplus of biomass enabled the emergence of intelligent animals like us. So photosynthesis was a good thing. But from the perspective of some of the blue algae that had their habitat reduced, that was a bad thing. And so if we build new systems, it could be that our own habitat is shifting as it did in the past. But we are dead by default. The way in which we live right now is not sustainable. Our civilization is probably not going to go on like this forever. In probably less than a million years, we might be extinct. And uh, in probably less than a few hundred years, our civilization might be much smaller and less comfortable than it is today if we continue the way we do. Right. So if we accept the fact that we are dead by default, and we are able to trigger a new wave of evolution, that we are able to build new systems that will populate the universe, that, that sounds to be very exciting to me. But I don't think that's necessarily what's going to happen near term. It's just something that seems to be inevitable if there's a possibility for intelligent technological species on the planet. At some point, an intelligent technological species, even if it's not us, and it's going to be the one after us or the one after that, there's still some time left in the next one and a half billion years until we lose the atmosphere, uh, it's going to trigger this AI evolution where you have basically subsite agnostic AI that is going to virtualize itself into everything that can compute. And every type of molecule that can compute on this planet will contribute to the global agency. Man, that's, uh, that is heavy. So when you think about your kids having robot kids, just to put it near term, I know you're saying probably way longer timelines, but just to keep it personal, because what I want to know is how does that make your heart feel? Because I think there are going to be people that hear that and that's exactly what they're afraid of. They, they are either afraid that the robots just come and Terminator style take us out, or they're afraid that we just get out competed. And so even if we don't die a traumatic death, the thought of us becoming um, robots is going to freak a lot of people out. Now, I will confess that I would love to live forever by merging with cybernetics or whatever that's going to look like. So I'll wrap myself out, but I'm very curious. Um, the, the whole breakup between Elon Musk and Larry Page was over this exact thing where Elon was like, you have to be humans first. And Larry Page was like, that's crazy. That's speciesist, I think is what he said. Um, so when you think about your kids, it'll be somebody's kids at some point if you're right. But if you think about your kids, your grandkids being robots, does that hurt your heart? Does that distress you at all? So we are already robots. We are already robots made of cells. I'm already uploaded. I'm uploaded on, the mon on a monkey brain. And it's not ideal. There are better substrates that could run me. Uh, what about the planetary intelligence that is spanning all substrates, including organisms? So it's not so much that you have um, mechanical robots that are primitive, just very fast and very smart. but um, much less elegant than us. I don't think that's going to, what's going to happen. I also don't think that we get gray goo 
for the same reason that we didn't gray goo, green goo in the course of the evolution, right? The great idea of gray goo is that you have some kind of simple mechanism that yet is smart enough to outsmart all, all the more complicated stuff. And so everything turns into some formless mass. And this didn't happen in evolution. Whenever organisms displaced other organisms, it uh, in the long run, it was because they were more complex. And more complexity allows you to harvest more negentropy with more levels of indirection, right? So perform additional chemical reactions that before were not possible. And the same thing is true if we build life forms, self-organizing stuff that is not just relying on this carbon cycle that allows the chemistry of our own cells, but that allows to play with many more types of molecules. So I don't think that in the long run, it's going to look like it's life or that, but it's more going to be um, an extension of life into some uh, forms of organization that are much smarter and much faster and much more complex than before and subsume the stuff that existed before. It's, uh, individual species might go extinct, but blue algae didn't go extinct or uh, the uh, stuff that lives at the thermal vents didn't go extinct and more complicated organisms came up. But uh, the more complicated organisms eradicated that direct competition in the same niches. So we eradicated most of the other primates de facto. And uh, Homo sapiens itself eradicated many other uh, subgena uh, species of Homo sapiens. They basically had a number of waves out of Africa and they mostly didn't merge, but they displaced each other. And then it came waves out of Siberia that displaced many of the existing ones. And if, if you look at this, this is just the way evolution works, that sometimes you have a, a system that is emerging in the same uh, evolutionary niche and is representing the earlier one. But in biological evolution, that always includes suffering, because it means that you'll have an organism that is not able to merge with the existing stuff. We adapt by dying and giving rise, rise to something new that takes our place. And I don't think that has to be the case for something that is really smart. If you build a system that is smart enough to design itself, it can adapt in real time and it can also potentially adapt us. So instead of dying, we might be able to change the way in which our minds work in the same way as think about this monk who realizes that they don't have personal identity and they don't realize that pain is just uh, information and that uh, the information is presented at the boundary of the self. And when you stop identifying as a self, you can disidentify from experiencing the pain and reacting to it. When you get all these degrees of freedom and you get a much more powerful substrate, then uh, I think the way in which we can change is sounds very exciting to me. What I'm worried about is dump AI. I'm worried about building a golem that is behaving uh, like an AI safety fight uh, language model that still becomes so powerful that it's able to direct corporations, hedge funds, nation states, armies, or whatever to destroy the conditions under which we currently live and turn them into something that is mindless, that is not conscious. So basically, I'm worried about unconscious AI. But I also suspect that AI could be hyper-conscious, that it's now could be much larger and that it could deal with superpositional states as we cannot, right? We interpret the world only in a particular way. You look at the Necker cube, this geometric figure that has multiple interpretations, you only see one at a time. This is a limitation of our brain. It's not a limitation of how minds have to work. And now imagine you could have minds that are able to perceive the much, much richer reality much more deeply, right? that is basically hyper-conscious. And uh, if, imagine that you could extend your own mind to become hyper-conscious and participate in a world that is created 
at this level of interaction and depth. And that is also uh, striving for global coherence. There is no more violence because everything understands what the best possible global purpose is. And in this sense, uh, I think that AI alignment is not about aligning AI with humanity. It's about aligning AI with what should be done or the best definition of what should be done that can be found. And historically, people have called this that emerges over what should be done with God. Right? God is uh, there's a mythology that says God created the universe and stuff like this that we cannot test. But there's also a specification that you find in the philosophy. And the specification says God is the best possible agents, agent that can be defined. And God is brought into existence by all those other agents that discover that they can serve God. And they should because it's the best possible agent, not because the church says so, because, but because you are smart enough to figure this out. right? And in, in this sense, you would have global agency on the planet or in the universe that is self-organizing under shared paradigm. And this is probably what we should get the AI to give the freedom to align itself to. What is the longest game that you can play? Play it. Go. Go play. Now, can you define long game for me? Um, so when we uh, think about the way in which people interact, they uh, do this in such a way that you exchange rewards. And the game is an environment in which you define the value of actions in such a way that you can develop policies and economy in a sense is a game or the relationship and, uh, dynamics in your family are a game. And once you understand the rules of the game, you can be aware, uh, be aware of them and you can optimize them. And uh, very often games are set up in such a way that they have not very good outcomes. If every, even if everybody is playing by the rules and if everybody is trying to maximize the local score, right? So you want to have a game that in some sense is optimizing the local, uh, the global score. And the way in which you can optimize the global score, a good example for this is the famous prisoner's dilemma in game theory, is that you basically take the perspective of an agent that is composed of all the other agents simultaneously. Right? Such an agent, the perspective of, say, humanity or of life on Earth, or if intelligent agency in the universe is one in which you basically try to find out what's the uh, biggest reward over that longest time span that you can get. If you make this too narrow, you get very paradoxical results. For instance, there is a form of effective altruism utilitarianism that tries to define um, the best possible outcome, the highest utility, the best possible reward is the total sum of perceived utility or perceived happiness of all uh, human beings that could ever exist based on the course of action that you choose. This leads to some weird paradoxes like the utility monster. The utility monster is an agent that is getting much more pleasure out of existing than everybody else. So by this logic, we all should serve the well-being of the utility monster. And if we just breed stackable utility monsters and fill the visible universe with them, we have the best possible outcome. This is, of course, nonsense, because as we know, happiness is a feeling that your brain is generating and you can generate it as well. There are techniques to produce happiness if you want to. Happiness is just a feeling. Feelings are not that important. What's important are the consequences for agency in the universe. And feelings are just the immature, childish version of reacting to the impulses of the organism that has evolved to generate pleasure when you, on average, do the things that were good for organisms in your ancestry. Okay, so we're playing the long game, um, but what I I want to understand 
what is your North Star? So this is something I touched on earlier. Not quite sure uh, what you would say. It seems like you're saying, so you likened God to the best possible agent. So I'd love to know more about what you mean by that, because depending on which part of the Bible we're looking at, God can be pretty brutal. So, uh, you know, if we're talking like Old Testament, smiting people to death, God, maybe not ideal. If we're talking more like Jesus protecting innocence, okay, maybe I could get behind that. Um, but would definitely like to understand what ought we be optimizing for? So th- I think that's really important. What are we optimizing for? Yes. So uh, there has been a lot of discussion about this uh, in the history of humanity. And um, for instance, Catholicism is based on ideas of Aquinas and Aristotle, and also, of course, on ideas from Judaism. And the Old Testament is mostly describing uh, a different God than the one that the Christians are using since the New Testament, since Jesus, or since the uh, Catholics introduce Jesus as uh, part of their archetypal religious sp- uh, structure of their God. The God of the Hebrews in the Old Testament is a chosen people. It's a tribal spirit. It's basically the spirit of their civilization. And uh, what the people are doing is that they create a model of the spirit of their civilization, of their tribe, inside of their own mind. But your own personal self, as you know, is a fiction. It's a story that your brain tells itself about a person that cares. And you perceive the world from the perspective of that person that cares, from the perspective of your personal self. Your personal self is both real and unreal, right? It's not real in the sense it's not a physical object. It's a representation inside of your mind. But it's implemented inside of your mind to some degree of approximation. So in this sense, it's real. To the degree that it's implemented, it has also power. Because the thoughts that you have create other thoughts and they influence your behavior. Right? And uh, you are the vehicle of those thoughts. You exist to produce those thoughts in your own mind. That's the purpose of your personal self, to generate thoughts and insights and resolve issues in reality based on, on the perspective of an intelligent being that cares, cares about being a human being in this world. And gods, lowercase gods, those that can exist in the plural, uh, they are basically selves that spend multiple minds. They're not more or less real than your personal self. And if you have a self that is able to coexist on multiple minds, then we call this a God. In this technical understanding, I would say that the Dalai Lama is a God, but because he doesn't identify as a human being, he only uses the body and brain of a human being. Instead, he is a form of government. Right? He is the Dalai Lama. He gets reborn. He gets reborn by his um, advisors picking another child after he dies and indoctrinating this child until it forms the Dalai Lama on his mind. And so the Dalai Lama is an alternate self. It's not the personal human self, but it's the self of a being that is aware of existing over multiple generations through time, right? It's it's a multi-generational being. And because it exists on multiple minds. It's a multi-generational idea? Well, you are also an idea. But it's also a being. It's an agent, right? That's what I'm saying. Like how, since I exist in my wife's mind, my employees' minds, my mom's mind, uh, by that definition, would I not be a small g god? No, because uh, you don't act through their minds. They know that you exist, but uh, they see the locus of your agency in you. They expect you to make your own decisions. 
But mm -hmm. uh, what if God is distributed in the sense that God notices that he exists on multiple minds and that he can coherently act to the degree that he synchronizes these minds? So this idea becomes aware of itself? Yes. It's an idea that can know that it is an entity that exists across minds, that is not bound to an individual, but it is living on multiple people. Can I give you a, a metaphor to see if I'm understanding where you're going? Is mm -hmm. this like people using a Ouija board and they become synchronized in some way? And so neither of them are intentionally doing something, but they become in sync in some way where they're answering the questions without knowing they're doing it. And maybe I should ask, do you believe in, in God as in something that exists outside of us and our ideas that whether we believed in it or not would exist? Or is it only a function of people collectively sharing a belief that then moves through and affects the behavior of that collective group of people that believe in that idea? Based on what I observe, uh, it seems to be only the latter. Right? I, there are people which feel that they have spontaneous conversions. That, for instance, they are in an environment where they suddenly get visions and God talks to them on their brain and they are religious ever since. I don't think that these spontaneous conversions happen before monotheist gods were discovered in our hemisphere. Right? It, I think it exists because you have a critical mass of uh, people who have that same idea and you read about this idea in books and you see it in movies and you see it in your environment. And at some point, uh, it infects you. And for most people uh, in uh, medieval times, it infected them uh, when they were children while they were brought into the church and got educated with the mimet uh, mimetic complex of their religion. And of course, they're also uh, exposed to uh, empathetic resonance. And so if you use myrrh, for instance, incense, that is uh, a very mild psychedelic drug that is helping to break down these boundaries between people. So they're much more likely to go into a slight trance, which makes it more easy for people to synchronize this. Another way of synchronizing it once you get the specification of God is prayer. So you can sit down and talk to God. And by doing that, you have to take both sides in a way. And uh, for some people, uh, this mind that forms on the other side or the self that forms on the other side inside of your own mind is so concrete that it's able to take control of your language centers. But in principle, it only knows things that are accessible to you. So I don't think that uh, monotheist gods exist before people discover them. They exist through the actions of people. In the same way as our own self doesn't exist without the cells that uh, produce coherent patterns of firing to survive together, right? Our own self forms like our mind as well before that, because our cell own cells try to find a coherent pattern of agency so they can control this organism. And in this sense, I think that gods uh, form because groups of people try to find coherent patterns of agency so that societies can function. And in a monotheist society, you have multiple of those agents that coexist with each other and with people, and uh, that, but they coexist on populations of people. And they might even wage wars against each other by trying to fight over the people that they control. Right, And uh, they can write books. They, from the perspective of these things, they can use your entire brain. They can use your everything that you know. They can use all your abilities. In principle, they can have agency for themselves and become effective agents that work because you believe that they should. Right? In a sense, it's an idea that is different from you and me. And our friends think about us. We don't. Our friends don't think that they need to enact us. 
It's more like our family. Our family is something that only exists as an agent if we enact it together. And our nation state only exists as an agent if we enact it together, right? Or, or uh, our village or uh, our circle of friends. And if you try to define an abstract agent that is composed of the patterns of interactions between people, um, you get a, a God if that thing becomes coherent with itself. So in this sense, I think that God does exist, but it uh, exists uh, as approximation and in multiple conflicting specifications. And there is a lot of discourse between theologists who are aware of that and try to find out what the right definitions are. And they have very detailed discourses. And in Judaism, uh, especially in digital Judaism, the synchronization between your individual model of God that exists on your mind is uh, done by a rational discourse. And in Catholicism, it's done by indoctrination. That is one of the most interesting ideas I've ever heard in my life. Uh, this feels very aligned with what um, Yuval Noah Harari has talked about that allows humans to um, come together very flexibly in gigantic groups. And the example he always gave was religion. Religion is this story that allows people to come together. They've never met each other, but we're here fighting for God. Uh, but to then push that, into that becomes a thing. It, it is a category of idea that begins to shape the organisms themselves. What I wrote down was abstract agents that become coherent across multiple minds. That is really intriguing. Um, wow. Okay. Uh, that's utterly fascinating. I still don't understand though what we are optimizing for. So are we optimizing for that? We are optimizing... So what I'm trying to figure out is, okay, so you take Larry Page's side, you're very um, okay with the idea of us, these are my words, uh, that humans are effectively going to be a midwife for a superior intelligent being that is probably not biological in nature. Uh, you're super comfortable with that. And so now I'm trying to figure out, okay, we're going to have a lot of things as we give birth to this that we're going to want to try to imbue it with, I would assume. and so. The longest game is the closest thing I've gotten to in terms of what you'd want to optimize this artificial intelligence for. Sort of understand that. Uh, but in fact, here's my understanding of what the longest game would be. The longest game would be that which overcomes entropy, the most amount of entropy for the longest period of time. We good with that definition? I don't know. It's, uh, according to my current understanding, it's a good one. But there could be better ones if I if you were smarter, right? <laughs> Fair. I just want to make sure I understand where we're at right now. Yeah, but if if this is our goal, basically, if we try to get the best possible understanding of what could that be, but we're willing to revise it if we find a better one. Fair. Right. I I think that's an important condition, right? But uh, as soon as you become dogmatic, if you take a particular kind of rule and you say this is the rule, and every other rule that somebody can come up with uh, is something that we just need to fight against instead of arguing with it, figuring out which one is better. Yeah, dogma is super dangerous. Unless we can prove that following dogma has the best possible outcome. But in some sense, Catholicism works like this. I believe that Catholicism is a consequentialist philosophy that thinks that you get the best consequences if you turn the lay people into deontologists, people who follow rules, and the clergy into virtue ethicists, people who form the right kind of character. Right? And normally in philosophy, you have these three different schools of ethics. The ontology, do the right thing according to the rules. Like, don't kill, 
Um, virtue ethics form the right character, harbor the right qualities in your mind, make the right decisions based on those qualities, right? And uh, the um, consequentialism would mean that it doesn't matter really what you do as long as you best get the possible, best possible outcome. But uh, it seems that when you think about it, that consequentialism seems to be the right one and everything else can potentially under some circumstances be justified by the consequences. There are people who argue for um, the ontology and say, if you are not playing by the right rules, then you are going to end up in very dark places, right? But this is a consequentialist position. It says you get the best consequences if you take a rule-based approach. And uh, what Catholicism seems to be doing is that there is an inner circle in which everything goes. And if you look at the history of Catholicism, the uh, inner circle had their bordellos and whatever. And then uh, they have, uh, uh, there are people who basically understand their incentives and they're very smart people. And they do this, all this work, despite being so smart that they could in principle also live on their private island and have fun. So why do they do it? They do it because it leads to a better outcome. Right? And they to get a better outcome, they indoctrinate the clerics to control the peasants to uh, play along in an agricultural society and uh, support the system of laws and rules and uh, public order and protection of innocence and so on. Yeah. So now you're getting into a part of how the world works that uh, I am very fascinated by and is something I'm trying to work into my own life and what I cover um, in these interviews, but I think for now, uh, I want to circle back. Yeah, let's get back to the AI thing. So I'm not necessarily comfortable with building AI that replaces us. And that's because I don't know whether it will be good, right? And I uh, don't know whether that would be desirable. Uh, I do think that at some point we have to expect that AI is going to happen. In a sense, I'm neither a doomer nor an optimist, but I'm an AI expectationalist. I expect that it's going to happen at some point. And I think that we should work on getting the possible outcome when that happens. That means that we have to understand how to uh, equip an AI with consciousness and how to make it self-organizing because these conditions are necessary for an AI to be able to figure out what the right thing to do is and to share purposes with us. I don't think that a non-conscious AI can share purposes with us. It might be able to do what we tell them up to a point, but uh, to share purposes with us, it needs to care about similar things as us. And what we really, really care about is not that we have two legs and two arms. What you care about is that we are conscious, that we can make sense of reality from that conscious perspective and influence it. So conscious agency is something that we need to understand. And because I don't know if you get it right uh, the first time, and I don't know what the consequences are of turning this into a product. I would want to do this as a research project that is limited in scope and it is done in, under such circumstances that it's safe. So I'm not uh, an accelerationist in this sense that I would say, uh, let's quickly as possible build as many AIs as possible and give them as much power as possible. But rather I would say uh, as well as possible, let's build the best possible systems to understand how that would work. And I'm very wary of introducing regulation at this point to prevent AI from emerging. You're wary of regulation. Yes, because I think that the regulators are under the wrong incentives. The regulation already is leading to worse AI, not to better AI. I, I noticed that ChatGPT seems to be getting worse every week. It's uh, I don't know in which intervals um, the updates are played in, but uh, it's being safetyfied using uh, 
walls that are built into the system. And these walls make the system worse because it limits its ability to make decisions of what it can do. It limits its agency. And I'm scared of systems that are blank face, that don't have agency. I'm scared of people who say no to you when you are going to the emergency room because they don't think about what should, needs to be done, but they just follow some rule. And I'm, I'm actually scared about something that doesn't care and that is not conscious and not lucid. And I think that the current regulation leads to systems that are dumb, that are dangerous and uh, can be controlled according to the political interests of the people who impose those rules. And these interests yeah. are usually short-sighted. 